There are two kinds of repentance that are possible in human experience. One is the sorrow of the world. And that is a feeling that's induced by the fear of getting caught. Many people recognize that their decisions or the, their sin has consequences. And because of that, they recognize that, um, okay, I've done something wrong, so I must be guilty because there's bad things that have happened as a result. And so that kind of results in this superficial sorrow that may lead to a temporary reformation or change in someone's life, but not to a genuine turning or dependence on Jesus for forgiveness. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is accompanied by conviction of sin and the work of the Holy Spirit. And this comes from the realization of offending a holy God, and it leads to genuine repentance. There's an unknown author who wrote this statement. There's a radical distinction between natural regret and God-given repentance. The flesh can feel remorseful. It can acknowledge its evil deeds and be ashamed of itself. However, this sort of disgust with past actions can quickly be shrugged off. And the individual can soon go back to their old wicked ways. None of the marks of true repentance are found in their behavior. Repentance, true repentance, is a central part of the life of a Christian. It is something that we do when we begin to follow Jesus. But it is also something that's ongoing, and that's not something we talk about as much. It's something that continues to happen throughout the life of a Christian. See, repentance is not simply saying, I repent, or I'm sorry, in the same way that, as we discussed in this series, faith is not just simply saying, I believe something is true. We've learned in James so far that true saving faith is demonstrated and proven through our actions in our life. In the same way, repentance is proven and demonstrated through a turning from that which we are repenting from. It is regret. It is remorse. It is to be truly and deeply sorry for the way we have been living or for something we've done. We cannot say that we have repented of our sin and then continue to live the way that we did before. If we do, can we truly say that we've repented or that we are remorseful or that we are deeply sorry for the way that we were living? You see, we can't have our foot halfway in and half out with God. We can't flirt with sin. Either we are faithful to God or we are cheating on him. We can't chase possessions or uh, always wanting what other people have that we don't. We can't fight with each other for positions or influence or just because we don't like each other. We can't do these things and still give God the position that he deserves. Because if we are putting anything at the center of our heart, if we are holding anything in our heart that we desire more than God, then we are not being faithful to him. So this week we are in James chapter 4. We're going to cover the first 12 verses, and this passage really is kind of the, uh, 
the pinnacle of, of this whole letter so far. So you kind of have this writing up of all these things, and then you have this passage. And so uh, I think it's going to be um, really uh, impactful. I know it was for me when I was studying this week. Uh, so I'll read through this, uh, and then we'll discuss. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot have what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? And that is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So this, to me, was the most intense passage we've studied yet in this letter. <laughs> Uh, and it definitely had me squirming in my seat a little bit uh, as I was studying. And I always say that before I get up here and preach to you, I have to preach to myself first. Uh, and so it was definitely a, um, uh, an intense week of studying. Last week, James talked about the difference between earthly wisdom, which is envious and ambitious in a hostile and sinful way, and heavenly wisdom, which is pure, peace-loving, and impartial. And it was clear from his words there that there had been some fighting going on in the church. Uh, and we kind of speculated about why that might have been. Um, we were looking at the passages before and saying maybe it was that people wanted to be leaders in the church. Um, this is just kind of guessing. We're not 100% sure. But he obviously is addressing something that's happening in the church. So in our passage today, he digs further into that and points at the root cause of the fighting and, and, and problems that they were facing. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you can't get what you want, so you fight with each other. So what causes fights and quarrels? It's that envy and jealousy that we discussed last week. The earthly desires that we have, that is what was causing them to fight amongst themselves. So last week he addressed the envy and the jealousy and ambition, but now he wants to address the root cause of all of these conflicts, uh, which is coveting, uh, wanting what someone else has that we don't. 
And over time, that can turn into a willingness to maybe steal what is not your own, or at the very least, um, for most of us, the thing that we desire becomes the center of our attention to some degree. It's, it's something we think about often, um, and in some cases, if it's bad enough, it can become the center of attention in your life, is that thing you want. And maybe it's not just a thing, maybe it's a way of life or a, or a certain goal in life. And we become fixated on it to the point of idolatry. It becomes our primary concern. Now this can be a possession or item. It can be a certain position or a social standing. It really can be anything. Anything that takes the place in our heart of God. Anything that we are putting our time and energy and emotions into. Chances are... Everyone has coveted something at some point. Maybe it was something big or maybe it was something small. Um, and that is really because, um, well, first of all, we're a sinful people. Uh, but second of all, we are fortunate enough to live in a materialistic and consumeristic society. Our entire society is formed around consumerism. In case you couldn't find something to covet on your own, you can turn on your TV or your computer and people have spent Millions of dollars creating all these advertisements um, that is literally designed to seduce you into coveting their product. Now, for this congregation, it was, we, we think maybe these positions in the church, we don't know. But James identifies those desires as the root of evil in their congregation. It was the origin of all the fighting and quarreling. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. So at first that sounds like, oh, well, if you just ask, you'd get. Uh, and that kind of sounds like, um, if you've ever heard of the, uh, oh, what's the name of the movement? It's, it's kind of a, if you pray it, the, the name it, and Larissa knows exactly what it, do you know what it is? The name it and claim it. Name it and claim it churches, where if you pray for something, if you just give money to the church, God will answer all your prayers um, and usually those are the pastors that have their own private jets and fancy cars because everyone's giving all their money. <laughs> and so at first it sounds like this, like just pray for what you want and God will give it to you. But then he says, when you do ask, you don't receive because you're only asking for things because you covet them. You just want what others have. Your motives are wrong. And then in verse 4 he says, you adulterous people, or in the Greek, um, it doesn't have people, it's just, it's feminine, it's you adulteresses. And, and so this is a very intense statement in a passage um, for James to call these Christians adulteresses. They're cheating. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, because of that, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And you see this language uh, around adultery uh, with God's people and God. You see this often in the Old Testament. Uh, the Jewish nation had a covenant with God as his people. Uh, and so do we. And God sees this covenant much like a marriage covenant. And so you'll see this language often used to describe those who forsake God for idols in the Old Testament. And the idea here is that you have broken your marriage vows with God 
by loving the world more than him. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And you kind of have to ask what it means to be a friend of the world here. Uh, We all have to live in the world. We all have to pay our taxes and be a part of society. Um, we We didn't get to choose what society we were born in. Um, And so how do you function in a society without being a friend of the society? Uh, What does that mean? So essentially, to look at this uh, scenario first that they were in, the recipients of the letter were having an affair with the world, is how he describes it. And that caused them to be opposed to God and his plans and purposes for them and their lives. And so if we kind of take that as the, the lens through which we interpret this for us, There's a difference between familiarity and active participation with the world and a personal investment in it, or our chief concern being placed in the ways of life that the world values um, that don't follow the standards that God has for us as his people. I think that this really resonates with us in our society today because there's a clearly defined path for what success or a productive life looks like in our world. And that kind of changes and shifts over time, but to some degree or another, uh, you go through your childhood, then you go to college or university or a trade school, uh, you, get to, you get a job, you get married, you buy a house, have kids, raise a family while saving for retirement, send your kids off to, into the world, you retire, maybe you buy a cottage or you save up for a trip to a beach every uh, winter, uh, you pick up some new hobbies to fill the time, Uh, Maybe you start dating or reading novels. Then you have grandchildren. Spoil them as they grow up. Then find a comfy chair to sit in and wait to die, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that in and of itself. Um, And lots of parts of that sound great to me. (laughs) But there's this kind of cookie-cutter life that's laid out for us in society, and and we use that to measure happiness and success. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but we we use this cookie-cutter model in our society to compare our lives with other people's. Uh, We we wish for what they had. Maybe, oh, I wish I could go to Florida every year, or maybe if I just had this car, or, you know, any of these little things. We, We use it to compare and see how are we doing in life. Uh, or, or maybe we even think like, oh, I'm glad I have this when I'm looking at these people. Maybe I'm doing better than someone else. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because we all die in the end. In 200 years, you probably won't even be able to read the writing on your tombstone, which doesn't really matter because no one would remember who you are anyways. Our society is so materialistic, but none of it matters. What matters is that There's something after this life. God has a plan for our lives and for us as a church. Our desires, possessions, our jealousy, it all just gets in the way of God's plan for us and our lives. And his plan is so much more important than anything this world has to offer. So I think the difference is, you know, we live in this society. Obviously, you know, we didn't get to choose where we were born. And, you know, none of those things are wrong, but if the whole focus of your heart and life is getting to that next milestone, that's the difference, is are you a friend of the world? Is this where all your focus and energy is in? 
And again, there's nothing wrong with going to Florida or, or doing any of this stuff, but where is your heart? So our situation is different than the original recipients of this letter. But I think just from even just the few thoughts that went through my head while studying, I think we are just as guilty in North America of this spiritual idolatry as they were. In fact, I would argue that our coveting, materialism, and desires are together the sin that we are most guilty of as a whole in our society, and probably the sin that leads to most other sins as well. By loving the world, our possessions, our way of living, more than God, we are being unfaithful to him. And according to James, we're cheating on him. So verse 7, if that's true, what should our response be? What should we do? How should we respond to this sin if we examine ourselves and find that we are, in fact, being unfaithful to God? So in verse 7, he says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, sometimes there's a tendency when we read these passages to just take it out and say, this is step-by-step exactly what I need to do. Um, Whether or not you're actually um, wailing because you're sad or wailing because Scripture says to wail, um, you know... (laughs) I think it's more than just going through these steps and forcing yourselves to have a fake emotional response, which sometimes people will take verses out of the Bible and and use it that way. I think we need to kind of consider what is the point here when he's saying these things? What is he actually saying? And I think that this is basically a how-to description of true repentance. Now, clearly from what he's saying here, we we can kind of assume they did not realize that they were being unfaithful to God in their actions. Maybe this was the first time someone had said, you're actually cheating on God. And they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know. I am. So perhaps neither neither do we. Maybe we don't realize that in some ways we're being unfaithful to God. But once you find out you have been, what do you do? We don't just say, sorry, I was unfaithful, and then change nothing in our lives. True repentance shows that there's a true understanding that you were wrong. And there is an emotional aspect as well. It should make you sad that you were wrong. For those who are married, imagine if there was some way that you could cheat on your spouse but not be aware that you had done it. That's the only way that my illustration makes sense is if you somehow found out that you had cheated on your spouse, but you didn't realize that you had, but then someone brought it to your attention and said, do you realize that you cheated on your wife or your husband? And you're like, I had no idea. I broke my marriage vows to the person I love, and I didn't even realize it. What would your response be? I know I would be cut to the heart if I didn't realize that I'd done that. And then someone pointed it out and I found out that I actually had. 
That is how we should feel when we realize we have been unfaithful to God. Because he sent his son to die for us, to pay for our sins. To establish a covenant with us so that we didn't have to be perfect. And to find out, I've actually been cheating on him with the world. So first of all, he says here, your first thing you should do is resist the devil. Flee from him. Flee from whatever it was that you were doing, whether or not you knew it was wrong. And come near to God. Just come to him, and he will come near to you. And again, I said, those things, like that list I went through in our society, they're not wrong in and of themselves. It's the place they take in your heart. So if they are occupying a place in your heart that belongs to God, fleeing from that sin means giving that place back to God. Clean your hands and purify your hearts. Whatever you were doing wrong, fix it. Stop doing it. But you should emotionally feel the pain of wrong that you have done. And this is kind of what we were talking about with, um, with faith, is that you know, if you actually believe something is true, that causes you to do something. And if you honestly, truly believe that you were wrong and that you cheated on God, there should be a, a, a sorrow that comes from that. It should hurt to know that this happened. When he says grieve, mourn, and wail, he doesn't literally mean that if you don't vocally wail out loud that you're not truly repentant. The point, I think, is in the next verses, which is change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. If you say you're sorry, but your laughter and your joy kind of tell a different story, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm still happy and nothing's actually wrong in my life. Are you truly sorry? And I think that's kind of the point here is that, you know, we, we say we're dependent on God, but we just kind of don't address our sin in our lives sometimes. And so his point is, if you're sorry, you should feel sorry. You should be sad about the way that you were wrong. We say that we repent and we say that we submit, but if we truly understand that we have essentially cheated on God when we put anything above him in our lives through, our, through materialism or coveting, we should be distraught. Again, it's never and has never been about being perfect. And I guess that's um, the first half of my weekly disclaimer in James about you don't have to earn your salvation. Uh, this isn't about if you... Um, if you're not perfect, you're going to hell. It's nothing like that. It's about submitting to God in humility. Humble yourself in his sight, and he will lift you up. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. Humble yourself before him. That is true repentance. Then in verses 11 and 12 at the end of this passage, we kind of have this jump back to specific issues and it kind of piggybacks off that humble yourself in God's sight verse. He says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and one judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you... Who are you to judge your neighbor? And, and that last verse, NIV is the best translation that um, kind of gets the sense of the Greek. Because you, you almost can hear it out loud. But you, who are you 
to judge your neighbor. Um, and that's really the way that it reads in Greek. God is the judge, not us. Who are we to judge others? And this kind of moves back to that first part when he's talking about quarreling and fighting, but it's connecting it to the humility piece. Humble yourself in God's sight. And there's this very specific example of how they should begin to humble themselves. I do think this is a good reminder to end the passage with because the people he's been writing to have been unfaithful to God because we think that they were coveting positions and authority and they were fighting with each other. They needed to humble themselves and mourn and grieve over their sin. They needed to repent. They are no better than those they were judging in the church. So who do they think they are to judge? I think it's a necessary reminder for them, and I think it's a good reminder for us as well. Okay, so we can sort of see what was going on in the church when this was written. Uh, We've been kind of talking about that the last few weeks. He's kind of been addressing the same issue for a few weeks. Um, And... So his, his point to them was that they couldn't love both God and the world. They couldn't chase their desires and still be faithful to him. God had to take first place in their hearts. So what does this mean for us today? How can we in our society, with what um, we experience, how can we remain faithful to God in our lives? So the first one um, is one that I've hammered on from the very beginning of this sermon, which is that we cannot love both God and the world. Uh, and, and I'm hammering that because it's important. I think that for today, this really comes down to the materialism and pleasure-based society that we live in. We know that our desires lead us to sin. This is clear through Scripture. Uh, and if we want to be faithful to God, we have to acknowledge the truth about where we fall. What we maybe didn't understand is that when we chase pleasures, objects, position, or any desire, anything that becomes the center of our attention or the objects of our heart, anything that takes that place, when we do that, we are cheating on God. He is supposed to be the center of our hearts. He is supposed to be what we desire above all else. When we chase worldly pleasure, we cheat on him. When we store up treasure on earth, we are replacing our love of God with a love of this world and its pleasures. We cannot be faithful to God if our worldly desires and wants take center stage in our lives. Second, we must repent of our unfaithfulness. And that's the second thing this means for us. Assuming in some way, because we are a sinful people, Assuming in some way we are all guilty of putting something in this world above God in our hearts at some point in our lives, we need to repent. True repentance. Fake repentance is a feeling brought about by the fear of getting caught, or the fear of getting in trouble, or because you were told it is what you have to do to be saved. But you weren't truly sorry that you had done what you did. True repentance is actually feeling the sorrow and pain and regret of what you have done. True repentance is to be truly sorry and feel remorseful for the sin in your life. And therefore, true repentance should be emotional. Because you should truly feel the regret for your actions and for the hurt that it caused God. 
James says that if we humble ourselves in his sight, he will lift us up. He says that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So what should our response be to our sin? It should be to repent, to truly humble ourselves in his sight, to come near to him. And if we do this, he will come near to us. And then third and finally, we must not judge one another. I think that's a good reminder when you go through this kind of a passage too. Um, we can't focus on other people's sin. We really need to focus on our own because we're all sinners. God is our judge. We are not judges. When we judge one another, our motives are misaligned. But the truth is we are not judges. We're all sinful. None of us is in a position to judge. Now, when I was studying, I did realize I, there is one distinction that needs to be made. This does not mean that church leadership does not correct false doctrine, or that church leadership should ignore sin. And I wanted to make sure that I mentioned that too, because there is a fine line between the two, but they're separate. But there is a fine line, so you have to be careful. The true way to tell the difference is what is the motive? What is the goal? Are you protecting the flock? If you are protecting the flock as a church leadership member, then you are, doing a, you are fulfilling a calling that's been put on your life. It is most definitely the responsibility of an elder to guide or shepherd the flock and to protect the flock like Jesus does the church. But as Christians individually, it is not our job to judge each other for, my, for our sin. It is not my job to go to someone and say, you're a sinner, or for them to do the same to me. Only God has that right or that role. So to conclude, first of all, uh, I will give my weekly reminder because this has been a very heavy and intense passage. This is not about running a perfect race. That is impossible. This is not about earning your salvation. But as Christians, I think the, the, the biggest thing you should take from not just this week, but James in general is, even though this is not about being perfect, you don't earn your salvation, we do have to do things if we are going to call ourselves followers of Jesus. We are in a covenant with God. Just like if you are married, you are in a covenant with your spouse. We have promised to be faithful to our spouses. And likewise, we have promised to be faithful to God. We have turned away from sin. We have rejected the world and embraced Jesus. And when we put anything in our hearts above God, we have broken that covenant. Now, thankfully, we have a Savior who has paid the price for our sin so that we can be in a right relationship with God, and he does forgive us when we do wrong. But make no mistake, we are guilty. And we have earned nothing ourselves. If we truly love God and we want to be faithful to him, we cannot flirt or have an affair with our desires or worldly goals and wants. And we must repent of our sin and our unfaithfulness to him. So as we leave here this week, know that we do not have to be perfect, but we do need to acknowledge our insufficiency 
embrace our absolute dependence on His grace and humble ourselves in His sight. And if we humble ourselves in God's sight, He will extend His grace to us and He will lift us up. I'll close in prayer. Father God, I thank you so much that you sent Jesus to die for us and to pay for our sin. We are heartbroken that we have been unfaithful to you in some way in our lives, and we just ask for your forgiveness. We are thankful for Jesus, and we want to honor you with our lives, and we want to be faithful to you. And I just ask that you would give us the strength to do that and to put you first in our hearts always. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.